This podcast is a ministry of Rosemont Baptist Church in LaGrange, Georgia. Please visit us on the web at rosemontchurch.org. Enjoy the podcast and God bless. Let me pray for us before we begin. Father, we thank you again for this opportunity of study, Lord. We, We pray that we would... Father, just focus on your word and see the truth of your word. And Lord, I pray that it would be more than just an academic exercise, Father. More than just reading words on a page, Lord, I pray that we would take what we've learned and apply it to our lives, Father. And I pray that through the power of the Holy Spirit, we'd be transformed more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ, Lord. It's in his precious name that we pray. Amen. I want to begin this morning by reading a passage of Scripture from the New Testament. I don't want you to turn there. I just want you to listen. It's going to tie into what we're going to speak of this morning, what we're going to study this morning. I want to read from you Matthew chapter 27. Don't, don't look at it. Don't read it yourself. Just listen, because I'm going to read just portions of Matthew chapter 27 as we begin our sermon study this morning. Matthew chapter 27. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped off his clothes and they put on a scarlet robe. They twisted together a crown of thorns and they set it on his head and they put a staff in his right hand and they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and they took the staff and they struck him on the head again and again and after they had mocked him, they took off the robe and they put his own clothes on him and they led him away to crucify him. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots and sitting down, they kept watch over him there. And above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when Jesus had cried out in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. Now, the story of the crucifixion is central to our faith. But more than just an isolated event, it's a defining moment in human history. And although we can read about the gospel accounts of Jesus' crucifixion in Matthew, we can read about it in Mark, we can read about it in Luke, we can read about it in John, I believe that God has given us a picture of Christ and a picture of his crucifixion from the beginning of time. And so for the last many weeks, we've been studying Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. And we've seen pictures of Christ over and over and over again. But now the picture that we've seen isn't totally clear yet. In fact, if we were putting together a puzzle, we've placed a lot of pieces in that puzzle and we're beginning to see a picture of Jesus Christ, but we don't know the full story yet based on our study in the Old Testament. So I want to review just just very quickly for you kind of where we've been and what we've learned about Christ simply from our study in the Old Testament. We learned in Genesis chapter 3 that the Messiah would do battle with Satan, that he would be wounded, but he would eventually crush the head of Satan. We learned in Genesis chapter 22 through Abraham and Isaac that one day the Messiah in the future would take our place. Numbers, excuse me, Exodus chapter 12, the Passover, we learned that the blood of the innocent lamb would eventually save us from our sins. Again, we're building a picture here of Messiah. Numbers chapter 21, we learned in some way that Messiah would be lifted up. We don't know how, 
We don't understand exactly what that looks like yet in our study, but we know he'll be lifted up. 1 Samuel 16, when David was anointed a couple of weeks ago, we know that the Messiah would come from the house of David. 1 Samuel 17, last week, the story of David and Goliath. We know the Messiah would have ultimate victory over Satan. So we've been, we've been building this picture. And although we've, we've made a lot of strides and the picture is becoming a little more clear, we still don't know exactly who Messiah is yet. And in our study of the Old Testament up to this point, we've yet to have a very clear picture of his life that he lived and especially of the way that he died in his crucifixion. We, we haven't seen it yet, but here's what I'll argue this morning. Here's what I want you to see. As we move farther and farther along the line of redemptive history, the picture of Christ becomes clearer and clearer. So as we move through the Old Testament, the closer we get to the New Testament, the more we see the picture of Christ. And so today, we're going to examine in the Old Testament what I believe you're going to see as we, as we work through this passage of Scripture this morning is the clearest picture of the crucifixion you're going to see anywhere outside of the Gospels. And it's found in Psalm chapter 22. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to open to Psalm chapter 22. Psalm chapter 22. Now Psalm 22, let me give you a little bit of background as you're flipping your Bible, was written by David. Now, we've already studied David. We studied him two weeks ago in, in 1 Samuel 16. He was anointed as the king of Israel. Last week, we studied the story of David and Goliath and saw his triumph over the, the seed of the serpent. This week, in Psalm chapter 22, we're going to understand that David wrote the psalm. But here's what I want you to know about David. David lived about a thousand years before the birth of Christ. Now, that's very important for you to understand. David lived about a thousand years before the birth of Christ. David wrote the 22nd psalm, so we know... That Psalm 22 was written somewhere around a thousand years before Christ was born. About a thousand BC, Psalm 22 was written. Now, nobody really questions that claim. There's not some liberal scholar out there that questions the claim that Psalm 22 is written a thousand years before the birth of Christ. That's just known. We just understand when it was written, and we understand that it was written with something in mind. Now, here's the interesting thing about Psalm 22 it's going to speak about despair and hope. And it's certainly a picture of David's life. David lived a life of despair at times, hope at other times. But here's the interesting thing about Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is going to go beyond David's life in this. It's going to mention and discuss things that never actually took place in David's life. We're going to read about things that didn't happen in David's life. So here's what we have to understand. Although David was speaking of his own experiences at times... When he wrote the 22nd Psalm, he must have been looking ahead to some other event. I think you're going to see that as we study this morning. Here's the question. What events are you looking towards? So let's begin our study this morning. Psalm chapter 22, beginning in verse 1. Now, I don't have time this morning to go through the entire Psalm. We're going to work our way all the way to the end, but we're going to have to skip around a little bit for the sake of time this morning. Psalm chapter 22, look at verses 1 and 2 to begin. Verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer, and by night am not silent. Now I'm going to make the argument this morning that Psalm 22 is not just looking ahead to some event. I'm going to argue this morning that Psalm 22 is going to look ahead to the crucifixion of Christ. And so we're going to study Psalm 22 with Christ in mind. 
And there's some truths I want you to understand from this passage of Scripture. There's some things I want to pull out that I want you to see and understand about Psalm 22. And the first thing that we see in Psalm 22, number one, is we see the desperate cries of the Messiah. We see the desperate cries of the Messiah. Now, I just read the the first verse of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of you are probably sitting there going, wait a minute now. I've heard that. I just can't, I can't put my finger on it, right? But I've heard that somewhere. Well, let me remind you, I opened up this morning by reading Matthew 27. Don't look it up. Don't read it. I want to read it to you. Matthew 27, 46. Jesus Christ is on the cross. Here's what it says. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is, now listen to this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Here's what Jesus does. From the cross... Jesus is going to quote Psalm 22. That's what he's doing right here. And so here's what Christ has done for us. He's drawn this line from the crucifixion story of Matthew 27 all the way back to the Old Testament, Psalm chapter 22. Now, it's not the first time he's done this. Remember, we studied a few weeks ago Numbers chapter 21. You remember John chapter 3, Christ is speaking to Nicodemus, and he says, just as the serpent must be lifted up, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. It's a direct reference to Numbers 21. In this context, this is a direct reference to Psalm 22. So here's what we see. We begin to understand Psalm 22 to be a messianic psalm. It's a psalm that's going to look ahead to Christ. Why? Because Christ draws the line for us. You understand that? Christ makes the connection for us. We don't have to make the connection. He's made it for us. So here's what we begin to see. We begin to kind of delve into this passage of Scripture, and we we begin to kind of get a glimpse into the mind of Christ, into his despair. God, why, why would you forsake me, Lord? Right? You're so far from me. I've been groaning. I've been crying out. But I, I don't seek your answer yet. I am, I'm reminded of Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. I'm reminded of how Christ called out and prayed that the Lord would take the cup. Father, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours. And so we read this passage of Scripture in Psalm 22, looking ahead to Christ. And we ask ourselves this question, why would Christ pray this? I mean, why would Christ pray, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I want to remind you of something that's very important. I think sometimes we overlook this fact of the crucifixion. But when Christ was on the cross, watch this now, he bore the sins of the world. That's important. Now, if you're like me, when I think about the crucifixion, I did a lot of reading this week and a lot of study on the crucifixion. And every time I read about it, the first thing that comes to my mind is the physical pain. That's just what I think about. And I can't imagine enduring. You can't imagine enduring that kind of a pain. We, we think about the physical pain. But more than the physical pain, I think we need to understand, was that Christ bore the sins of all the world. 1 Peter 2.24 says this, speaking of Christ, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By His wounds we are healed. Now, now watch this. You, you understand the anguish of sin, don't you? You've experienced it. I've experienced it. You understand the pain of sin. I had a conversation just this morning with someone who is right now in their life, within their family, experiencing the pain of sin. We've all experienced it. You know the grief. You know, know the heartache. You know the tragedy that sin can bring into your life. You know that. You understand it. You've experienced it. Watch this. Think about taking all the sins ever committed and heaping them on Christ. Imagine the anguish he must have suffered. Imagine the pain and heartbreak he must have suffered. The physical pain was bad enough. The spiritual pain was much worse. But here's what God understands. 
You see, God is holy. We've seen that all through our studies in Scripture. God is holy, and because God is holy, He can't look upon sin. So as much as He loved Christ, He could not look upon the sin of the cross. And so we read this passage, and we understand how Christ must feel, and we understand His pain, and we understand His suffering. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But here's what I think happens with a lot of us today. We read this passage of Scripture, and we wonder how Christ could ask this question when we ourselves ask the same question to God oftentimes, don't we? Now, we may not phrase it exactly like this, but here's what we say. God, why are you letting this happen to me? Where are you, Lord? (laughs) I mean, do you not see what's happening in my life? Do you not see what's happening in my family, Lord? I mean, all you need to do is step in and just fix all this, God. Where are you? Why have you forsaken me, God? Why have you left me here like this to suffer? Why don't you do something to fix this? But here's what we have to understand, and here's where the psalm takes a turn. Because of everything that Christ accomplished on the cross for us, because of everything that Christ Jesus did for us, God will not turn away from us. He doesn't turn his back on us. He doesn't leave us or abandon us. So even in our darkest moments, even when we don't understand exactly what's happening to us or why it's happening to us, there is hope. And so we see this in Psalm 22. It's fascinating how one and two are the cries of desperation. Beginning in verse 3, though, we're going to see this change to hope. Look at verse 3. Psalm 22, verse 3 says this. Yet, you see that? God, you've forsaken me. Where are you? Why aren't you answering my prayers? Yet, in verse 3, you are adorned as the Holy One. You are the praise of Israel, verse 4. In your fathers, and in you, our fathers put their trust. They trusted you and delivered, and you delivered them. See, Abraham, Isaac, the promises of Genesis chapter 12, we've already studied. Verse 5, they cried to you and were saved, and they trusted in you and were not disappointed, verse 6. So, this, so we've gone from despair in 1 and 2 to hope in 3, 4, and 5. Now we're going to go back to despair in verse 6. Again, this is messianic, so let's read 6, thinking about Christ. Watch this. For I am a worm. And not a man scorned by men and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. Now, if you're taking notes, you need to underline that phrase, shaking their heads. We're going to see again in a few minutes. Verse 8. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him, it's a fascinating picture. We're going to come back to that. Verses 9 through 14. Again, from despair to hope. This psalm is interesting because it goes from hope to despair. Back to hope, back to despair. Now verse 15. My strength is dried up. We're thinking Christ again here like a pot shirt. And my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Now verse 16, 17, and 18. Maybe the clearest picture here. Psalm verse 22, verse 16. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. Remember, none of Christ's bones were broken. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and they cast lots for my clothing. That's fascinating. Written a thousand years before the birth of Christ. We've seen, number one, the desperation of the Messiah. But number two, in the middle portion of Psalm 22, number two, we see the crucifixion of the Messiah. We've seen the desperation of the Messiah, number one. Number two, we see now the crucifixion of the Messiah. Now, I want to review very quickly Christ's life here because I want to make sure we're all up to date on what we're talking about. Then we're going to work through this a little more in detail. Jesus Christ, born in Bethlehem, the city of David. Remember, there's the connection with David. From the house and line of David. 
After 30 years of preparation, he enters the ministry, and for three years he does incredible things. He heals the sick. He causes the blind to see. He causes the deaf to hear. He causes people that have died to live. But at a certain point in his ministry, Christ says to his disciples, it's time to go back to Jerusalem, guys. And the Bible says he sets his face on Jerusalem. He begins that slow march southward to Jerusalem. He enters the city the final time. And even though he had lived a sinless life and had been falsely accused, he's sentenced to death and he's crucified. Now it's at this point in his life, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, that Psalm chapter 22 just kind of leaps off the page. It just kind of jumps off the page to us. So here's what I want to do for the next few minutes. I don't want you to miss this. I want to compare Psalm 22 to Matthew 27 just for a few minutes. If you've got your Bibles and you want to go back and forth, save your spot in Psalm 22. Save your spot in Matthew 27. We're going to put them on the screen if you don't have that. But I want you to watch the incredible similarities between Psalm 22 and Matthew 27. So look at Psalm 22 again, verse 6. Thinking about the Messiah, thinking about the Christ. Kevin, I'm going to go back and forth between these. So if you can put up Psalm 22, 6. Great, there it is. Psalm 22, 6. Thinking about Christ, but I am a worm and not a man. Scorned by men and despised by the people. See that? So we know that at some point in the future, David writes, somebody's going to be scorned by men and despised by people. Now look at Matthew chapter 27, verse 21. Matthew chapter 27, verse 21. This is Christ standing before Pilate. Pilate speaks to the people and he says this, Which of these two do you want me to release? Asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. And by the way, Barabbas was the murderer. Now verse 22. What shall I do then with Jesus who's called the Christ? Pilate asked. They all answered, this is the people, crucify him. Verse 23, what crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. You see, this man who's despised and rejected by the people, just like we read in Psalm 22, verse 6. Now, let's go back to Psalm 22 again. Psalm chapter 22, look at verses 7 and 8 now. Psalm 22, verse 7, all who see me, again, we're thinking about Christ. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults. Now watch this. Shaking their heads. I told you to remember that phrase. Remember that phrase. Now verse 8. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Now there are two phrases I want to point out to you very quickly. Psalm 22 verse 7 and 8. Shaking their heads is the first one. That's very important. And then in verse 8. Let the Lord rescue him. Now remember that. Now let's go back to Matthew 27. Verse 39 and 40. Matthew chapter 27, verse 39. Listen. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads. You see that? That's Psalm 22. You're seeing that, right? (laughs) Psalm 22, saying, you're going to destroy the temple and build it in three days. Save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. Now look at verse 43 of Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27, verse 43. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him. You remember that from Psalm 22? They're going to say, well, if he loves the Lord, let the Lord rescue him. Now, if he wants him, for he said, I am the Son of God, let God rescue him. So, so we see, we're seeing this picture now, right? We're putting Psalm 22 right next to Matthew 27. We're beginning to see these parallels. Not just parallels in ideas, but parallels in words. Parallels in phrases. Exact phrases from Psalm 22 found in Matthew 27. Now let's, let's move on to the next section because I think it's right here. It becomes the most incredible portion of Scripture. 
It's even clearer than the others. Psalm 22, verse 16, 17, and 18. Psalm twenty-two, sixteen 16 says this. Dogs have surrounded me. Again, we're thinking Christ here. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. Verse 17, I can count all my bones. Remember, none of his bones are broken. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and they cast lots for my clothing. Now, here's the interesting thing about crucifixion. Here's, here's what I want you to understand about this writing. We read this and we see crucifixion, right? Hands and feet pierced. We, we totally get that. That's a clear picture in Psalm 22 of crucifixion. We get that. But here's what we need to understand about Psalm 22. When David wrote Psalm 22 a thousand years before the birth of Christ, it would be 500 years before crucifixion was invented. And let me say that again. Psalm 22 is written about a thousand years before Christ, a thousand B.C. It would be 500 years before crucifixion was first used. You understand that? Now you can go read secular writers on this. You don't have to believe biblical scholars. But as they study archaeology, the first... Examples they see of crucifixion are about five, six hundred years before the birth of Christ. So when David writes this about hands and feet being pierced, it's five hundred years before anything like that ever happened. It's phenomenal. It's unbelievable. So we've got Matthew, excuse me, we've got Psalm 22. Let me review. Here's the picture we've built up to this point. Ready? David's writing about something in the future, some man who's going to be mocked, he's going to be scorned and despised by the people. He's going to suffer great thirst. His hands and his feet are going to be pierced. He's going to be surrounded by evil men. And his clothing is going to be divided up and casting, cast lots for his clothing. That's all Psalm 22. That's nothing from the New Testament. That's all 22. Now you're saying, well, that's, that's a very clear picture. That's a very clear picture of a crucifixion. That's a very clear picture of someone who is surrounded by evil people. They've taken his clothes. They've divided his clothes up. But here's the question, Adam, I need you to answer. As clear of a picture as Psalm 22 is of a crucifixion, here's the question I need you to answer, Adam. How do we know it's about Jesus? Because there's no mention in Psalm 22 about Messiah. There's certainly no mention about Jesus Christ. All we know is that David's looking ahead to something in the future and the guy's going to be mocked and scorned, his hands and his feet are going to be pierced. How do we know it's a picture of Christ? Well, that's a fair question. And I'm so glad you asked it. I'd like you to look now at verse 22. I gave myself a softball right there, right? Psalm 22, verse 22. I want you to listen to what happens here. Psalm chapter 22, verse 22. I declare your name to my brothers in the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him, all you descendants of Jacob. Honor him, revere him, all you descendants of of Israel. Now watch this. Let's stop there for a second. Here's, here's what we've done so far. We've seen desperation first in Psalm 22. We've seen crucifixion now in Psalm 20. That's a clear picture. And the third thing we see in Psalm 22 is an ever-increasing circle of God's glory. That's important. The third thing we see in Psalm chapter 22 is this ever-increasing circles of God's glory. Now I'll remind you of something about crucifixion. This is important for you to remember. Crucifixion was a shameful thing to happen to anyone, especially to a Jewish person. And if your friend or family member or close loved one had been crucified, it's certainly nothing you would have wanted to discuss with people. It's certainly not anything you would have come back to church excited to share. It's certainly not something you would have gone on the streets and proclaimed to all the people you knew. Crucifixion was a very shameful event. You would have kept it as quiet as possible. You would have hidden it as 
much as possible. You didn't want anybody to know that it had happened. So if we're thinking about a normal crucifixion, which again had not even been invented when Psalm 22 was written, if we're thinking about the crucifixion of a criminal, we would expect there to be quiet after this. Let's not talk about it. Let's not bring it up. Let's certainly not proclaim it to anybody else. But see, that's not what happens in Psalm 22. In fact, that's the opposite of what happens in Psalm 22. There it is again, Psalm 22. I will declare your name to my brothers in the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. So here's what's happened. Whoever's been crucified, we don't know who it is exactly, but whoever's been crucified, his name is going to be declared. Now that's not what we would expect from a crucifixion. Not only is his name going to be declared, but we, we begin to see this circle widening. So his name's going to be declared first to my brothers. That's what it says. Go back to verse 22. I will declare your name to my brothers. See, that's a small little group of people. In the congregation, I will praise you. Let's take a step outward now from my brothers now to the congregation. Verse 23. You who fear the Lord, all the descendants of Jacob, honor him, revere him, all you descendants of Israel. See what's happening here? Brothers, congregation, all the descendants of Israel. Now watch this. It takes a step even beyond that. Look at verse 27. Psalm 22, 27. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will bow down before Him. For dominion belongs to the Lord and He rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship and all who go down to the dust will kneel before Him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive. So here's the picture now. Let's, let's just make sure we understand this. This circle of proclaiming God's name is going to increase from brothers to congregation to all the people of Israel, eventually to all the peoples of the earth. We see this ever-widening circle. But here's what we understand. Here's, here's the point of Psalm 22 that we need to get. The only person whose name is going to fill the earth is Christ. You understand that? Not just some criminal. Not just some guy that David thought about. Not just some guy that David was looking ahead in the future to see. The only person whose name will fill the earth is Christ. So we see this picture of Jesus Christ forming more and more clearly. I'll remind you of Matthew 28, 19. Remember what it says. Matthew 28, 19. Therefore, go and make disciples of who? Do you remember? All nations. See the circle? All nations. Acts 1, 8. But you receive power and the Holy Spirit comes on me. You will be my witnesses in. Here it is. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. You see the circle widening right there? It's a circle to, it's a call to fill the earth with the glory of God. It was the call in the Garden of Eden to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. You remember that? Let's just fill the earth with the glory of God. It was the call to Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation. All the people will know you because of me. It was a call in Matthew 28 we just read. It was a call in Acts 1-8 we just read. It's still the call today. Because of what Christ accomplished on the cross, we have to make his name known to all the earth. That's the call. Randy Presley and I had the opportunity this week to go to a missions conference. We went down to a missions conference just one day. The International Mission Board put it on. And we're, we're really praying through finding a group of people somewhere in the world that's unreached. And there's, I think, 3,500 people groups in the world that are unreached. They've never heard the name Christ. They don't have any missionaries serving there. There are no churches there. There's no active spreading of the gospel in, in, in these large portions of the world. 
And so the International Mission Board is trying to find churches that are willing to partner and say, you know what, we'll do whatever we can to reach this people group. But I was reminded this week, sitting and listening to some of these people talk about the call of missions worldwide, I was reminded of the fact that there are approximately 1.7 billion people worldwide that have never heard the name Christ. That's unacceptable for us. You understand that, right? And so that's why as a church, we're, we're really trying to focus on mission work. And we're really trying to lead this church to do more and more things to reach people for Christ. We've taken our mission board back here. I don't know if you've noticed our mission board. When you go out of the worship center right here on the left, for a while it had the big circle diagram of all the money we'd spent last year on mission work and all the places we'd spent that money. We took that down and we've instead replaced that with little postcards. And on every postcard is a person or a couple that is somewhere in North America planning a church. That's what they're doing. Their call has been to go to some city and to plant a church. Now, here's what we're going to ask you to do. I want you to walk by that board over the next few weeks and just notice the board. Just look at all the different people and all the different places they're called to reach. And then in a few weeks, here's what we're going to challenge you to do. We're going to challenge you to go to that board, take one of those people down, and pray for that person. Pray that God would work in the heart of that person to reach souls for Jesus Christ somewhere in North America. But see, here, here's the point of missions. It began with Christ. Do you understand that? What he accomplished on the cross was our call to reach the nations. But now here, here, here it gets better. This is, my, this is my favorite part. We've seen so far the, the desperate cries of the Messiah. We've seen the crucifixion. We've seen this ever-increasing circle of God's glory. But now I want you to look at verse 30 and 31. The last two verses of Psalm 22, my favorite part of the passage. Psalm 22, verse 30 says this. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim His righteousness to a people yet unborn, for He has done it. That is powerful to me. <laughs> you see, we've seen a picture of desperation. We've seen a picture of the crucifixion. We've seen this ever-increasing circle of God's glory. But finally, all that Christ has done, the fourth thing that we see is that He has done it. That's powerful right there, my friends. See, this circle has increased. Brothers, congregation, Israel, all the world. And it's increased now beyond these geographic and cultural boundaries. And now it's moved in verse 30 and 31 to this eternal picture. Not only are the brothers and the congregation and the Israelite and all the world going to know, but posterity is going to know. Future generations are going to be told about him. They're going to proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. That's you. Do you understand that? When Psalm 22 was written, you were a people yet unborn. For some of you, your children may be unborn. Your grandchildren may be unborn. Your great-grandchildren may be unborn. But because of what Christ accomplished on the cross, His name will be made known not only in our generation, but in generations to come. I'm reminded of John 19, verse 30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. You see, Christ's death on the cross accomplished all the purposes he wanted to accomplish. He bore the wrath of the Father. He took our place. He offers us forgiveness for our sins. And when he proclaimed that it is finished, here's what he's saying. He's done it. <laughs> I've done it for you. Psalm 22 is an incredible picture, isn't it? 
It's an incredibly clear picture written a thousand years before the birth of Christ. And when David wrote Psalm 22, he had no understanding in his mind of exactly how it was going to be fulfilled. Yet centuries later, Jesus would be mocked. Jesus would be made fun of. Jesus would be despised by the people. Jesus would be surrounded by evil men. His hands and his feet would be pierced. His clothing would be divided up. They would cast lots for who would get it. He would suffer and die. And because of all he did, his name would be made known. And all the nations would be bow, bow down and worship to him. And future generations would know him. It's an incredible picture written a thousand years before the birth of Christ of his ultimate death and salvation for the world. Now here's what we've got left. Here's what I'm going to leave you with. I think you've got two choices this morning. You've got two very clear choices this morning. As you walk out this door, here are your two choices. Choice number one, you say this. I'm, I've examined Adam now, Psalm 22. And I've examined the picture in, in the Old Testament. And I've examined the picture in, in Matthew 27. You showed it to us pr- pr- pretty clearly. And all I can say, Adam, is they must have made it up. <laughs> there's no possible way it can be that, that close. There's, there's, there's no way, Adam. It kind of boggles my mind to think that a thousand years before Christ, there's this picture so clear and so precise that the exact words are used in the recount of his crucifixion in Matthew 27. It's too clear. They must have made it up. The writers of the New Testament must have made up Christ. That's the only explanation. They looked at Psalm 22. They looked at Genesis 3. They looked at Numbers 21. They looked at these passages in the Old Testament and they made up Christ and they fit him into this pattern so we would think that he was the Messiah. Here's the problem with that. You can't dismiss Jesus historically. He really lived. And he really died. And he really was crucified. And there's account after account, even outside of the Bible, that recount exactly who he was. So you you can't make the argument that they just made it up. So here's your only alternative. When you begin to see the clarity of Psalm 22 matching Matthew 27... As a picture of Christ, a thousand years before his birth, here's the only thing you're left to understand. It must be real. I mean, maybe Jesus really was the Son of God. Maybe he really is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. But here's the problem you're going to run into when you recognize that maybe this Israel, you're going to be held accountable for it. You understand that? God's given you his truth. He's made you aware of his truth And he's going to hold you accountable for his truth. You see, Jesus really lived. And he really died. And he really gave his life for your sins. And your choice to ignore that will cost you eternity. You need to understand that. But here's the most beautiful part of this picture. Here's the most beautiful part of this story. There's hope. And there's hope for one reason... And one reason alone. There's hope because he has done it. He's given his life for your sins. And he's willing to offer you forgiveness right now for all you've done. And he's done it. And all you have to do is believe. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the clarity of your word again, Lord. It is so clear and so precise and so understandable and so incredible, Father, when we begin to put the pieces together, Lord, and see exactly who you are and what you've accomplished. 
And it boggles our mind, Lord, that a thousand years before the birth of your son, you gave us the picture of the crucifixion in Psalm 22. You just showed it to us, Lord. It's as clear as it could possibly be, Lord. And so I pray we would understand right now very clearly, Lord, our call. Lord, our call to do the things you've called us to do, our our call to be the men and women of God you want us to be and to be the church you want us to be, Lord. But I, I realize that ultimately our call is to realize, Lord, you offer us forgiveness for our sins. And we need to repent, Lord, and turn to you. And Lord, I thank you for your son. I thank you for what he accomplished. Work in our hearts right now in a mighty and powerful way, Lord, as we consider this moment our decision. It's in Jesus' precious name that we pray. Amen. You can stand. We're going to give you a few minutes if you want to come and pray about your walk with Christ. If you want to turn from your sins, accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Or if you want to join this church, this is your time right now. Thank you for joining us for this podcast. We invite you to visit our campus at 3794 Hamilton Road in LaGrange, Georgia. Or visit us on the web at rosemontchurch.org. God bless you.